HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Kerrigan Behrens, CEO and co-founder of Sagely Naturals, a CBD wellness company. Kerrigan and her co-founder, Kaylee, were early on the CBD train and now run one of the leading CBD topicals brand in the country. Sagely products are available online and in 10,000 stores nationwide, including Neiman Marcus, CVS, Walgreens, Ulta, Sprouts, and others. Hello. Hi, Kerrigan. Hi, Allie. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on here. And I know it's, I had both you and Kaylee, but you guys are co-CEOs and co-founders. Is that right? That is right. Okay, great. Um, which is unusual and very cool. Um, I always say yeah. that I think women know how to better share power than men. <laughs> so it's usually men that ask me how we can handle being co-CEOs and women just sort of seem to understand. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's funny that you say that because I I did notice it when I was doing the research and I did kind of want to get into it a little bit. And then there were just so many other things I wanted to get into that I kind of kicked it, you know, 
to the curb. But let's take a second to talk about that because I also feel like you guys probably got really lucky with who you chose um, mm. to be your partner, right? Like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just hearing so much. It's hard. It's like a second marriage. It right? really is. Yeah. I always joke about that. I met my husband and Kaylee in the same year period. And it's like the most fortuitous year of my yeah. life because they are, truly are my life partners. Well, I, I want to get into at the end, if we have time, sort of like your tips for um, sharing the power, as, yeah, as you said. Absolutely. Um, but before all that, um, we were talking before the show that you went to Duke um, and then um, you went to business school. And I guess, you know, I always kind of start off with this question a little bit of like, did you want to be an entrepreneur before you went to college? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Why business school? You know, what kind of that, what did you want to be when you were nine question? Mm, I think I had no idea what I wanted to be when I was nine. I had two parents who were lawyers. Um, my dad ended up quitting law and moving into business. And so he was, his sort of social network was a lot of other entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and business people. Um, and my mom actually started a law firm at one point. So even though they had pretty traditional careers, um, they did both have an entrepreneurial right. spirit to them. But I went much more towards corporate life uh, because it just seemed safe. Um, you know, you know very well that many Duke graduates go on to <laughs> as traditional careers as you could possibly right. think of. So finance, consulting, and Teach for America. Now I bet you could add in tech. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, that was it for me. What could move me to New York and allow me to afford rent was finance. And my brother worked on Wall Street, and so I saw that it was an exciting career path right. and that I would be surrounded by smart people. And I think that was the driving force for me at the time is, you know, am I going to get good training? Am I going to learn a lot? Um, and can I afford my rent? <laughs> so, and you, did you go straight to business school? Because I, I, we were talking about it. You and I both majored in history. So there was no yeah. like econ major that, I mean, you didn't major in Econ. No, I had, <laughs> I think I just chose to believe the people when they said that what you that study in school, right. yeah, doesn't affect your future career. And um, I got a job on Wall Street right out of college. So I think they just believed me when I said I could be analytical and that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that right. I had analysis skills and right. Um, and then go figure, you know, I ended up in more of a sales and marketing role within my investment bank. So I was there for five years and ended up in a, a role that's essentially like uh, matchmaking for hedge funds and investors. So I was helping hedge funds raise money and right. Um, it, you know, it, I was looking at the markets, but that wasn't really the, the heart right. of my job. And I wasn't living in a spreadsheet, which made me happy. Right. Um, and then I want to get to something because I listened to a podcast that Kaylee did where she was talking about, um, I guess you went back to school, you went to grad school, and then I think she said you studied, you took some consumer insights class 
Um, and this is, you yeah. Know, like, yeah. And then that kind of changed. I don't know. It seemed like a big aha moment for you. Um, and I'm curious about that because I kind of want to know what that class was and, and, and what, and what was the aha moment, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, so after five years in finance, I, I just knew that I wasn't passionate about it. And, um, I was really passionate about food and I knew I wanted to start a business at some point also really wanted to work in marketing. And I just knew that my career background, again, like I could prove to someone that I, you know, worked hard and that I learned quickly, but I didn't really have the experience to say that I could work in marketing. Mm -hmm. And so um, going back to business school was to be, you know, the prototypical career changer. And so I took as many marketing classes as I could. I also took two internships. Um, so before I even started at school, I was able to get an internship with Wolfgang Puck doing mm -hmm. marketing. And then my, my um, summer internship between business school years was at Taco Bell. So amazing. That's great it, experience. Yeah, it really was. It's yeah. probably the most fun job um, I'll ever have. And I, I, <laughs> I would normally put Sagely as that job, but obviously a lot more responsibility comes right. with starting and running a business than did just being hear, a summer intern. Did you ever hear, it's a quote, it's like, entrepreneurs choose to work 100 hours a week so they don't have to work 40 hours a week. <laughs> like, I just so think true. It's a very funny way of putting it. Like, I don't want to work for the man, but then like somehow we end up being like, on call oh, I'm the worst man. 100 percent yeah. of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm my kids would man. always be like, wait, how come you can't whatever? I thought, you know, you owned your own business. And I'd be like, oh, if you only it's knew how many people own me. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. Yeah. Your investors own you, your customers yeah. own you, your employees do, even though they don't think they do. Yeah, they do. Um, okay. So going back to the consumer insights, yeah. like marketing, what were, you know, what well, funny enough, I find it all the, very interesting. The classes in, in marketing were great theoretical background. I learned in theory how you should manage a brand and why consumer insights are important and how to use data to inform marketing decisions. Um, but I think actually I learned the most about marketing in those internships because at I talk about, yeah. 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 And so we had, um, at Taco Bell marketing truly runs the entire organization. Mm -hmm. Um, I think every one of their most recent presidents came from their marketing team wow. and they have a lot of decisions that are driven by consumer insights. And so I got to see, how consumers can lead um, product development, mm -hmm. um, marketing messaging, you know, everything from social media to building a commercial. It was all led by what does the consumer need? Um, right. And they can't tell you that themselves. And so that's right. really the art of it, which is like, how do you glean from surveys or focus groups? Um, or one-on-one -on -one interviews, what people really want and need. And so when, when I had this aha moment for my business, the first thing I did was call my, um, my brand management professor from, from Anderson, where I went to business school. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, I thought your class was so interesting. 
but you never really told us how to create a brand. Like you, mm-hmm. you taught us how to manage a brand that's been around for decades. Right. Um, and she was like, well, it's not that different. You start with consumer insights. And I was lucky enough that she got us access to some grant money through UCLA. Wow. That, very cool. Yeah. And so that, that allowed us to do consumer insights before we really made a single decision about the business other than let's create a brand with CBD in it. Right. So I'm going to go to the CBD part and then I'm going to go back to the consumer insights part, because basically the backdrop for all of this is that when you were in school, did you try CBD for back pain or was this after school? And like you had that, you had the moment where you're like, wait a second, I don't want to do a vape pen and like these products aren't speaking to me. Wouldn't it be cool to take this amazing ingredient and make it into something that people are sort of like not sort of hiding in their bag or, you know, (laughs) skulking around trying to get, but similar to a melatonin or, you know, you know, yeah, exactly. All of the things that we use that are, um, accepted in a different type of way. So what the timing of that was that during school or before school or after school? Well, I had heard of CBD for the first time a couple years before school. And Mm -hmm. um, it was always in the back of my mind as something that I was interested in trying. At the time, I didn't have a prescription for medical marijuana. So and I wasn't so interested that I, you know, wanted to go out of my way. But I just had a friend who had used it um, for a, a medical issue that she was dealing with. And it was really, really effective for her. And um, and so until I was starting to deal with my own medical issues, it, it was sort of just in the back of my head as mm-hmm. this curiosity. And then, um, I graduated from business school. I didn't get the jobs that I applied for and really wanted. Um, and so I was kind of figuring out what's my next move and knew that I wanted to start a business. And so, um, had met my, my co-founder Kaylee, and we Mm -hmm. were talking about a couple of the business plans that I had written in school, which were actually food related, nothing to do with CBD. Um, and then, yeah, I was at a friend's, uh, birthday weekend in Ojai and there was a jar of CBD honey on the kitchen counter. And I, um, you know, just jumped out of my chair and asked if I could try some. And, um, I was at the time dealing with lower back pain. Um, it turns out I have endometriosis, which is, Oh, wow. Uh, so does my daughter. Oh, well, mm-hmm. we can talk more about that. A lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so as you know, it can cause a lot of chronic pain and yeah. I didn't have a lot of effective ways to deal with it. Um, yeah. and I had tried, I had seen 14 doctors and I had yep. tried every pain reliever you can think of. Um, so I tried it and I had this like light bulb moment, like, wow, this feels so good. Like Mm. I, I don't, I'm not high, but I definitely Mm -hmm. feel like the edge is taken off and I was feeling less stressed as well. Um, and so that next week I went and got my cannabis prescription and went to a dispensary for the first time and just very quickly realized that there were no brands with CBD that made me feel safe. Um, or, you know, or even beyond that, that made me want to 
you know, own that product and display right. it in my bathroom right. medicine cabinet. So right. that became the the rallying cry, which is like, I know that this ingredient works and I want more access to it, but there really isn't a brand that I trust. Um, and I, I was so interested in brand and passionate about brand at that point that I knew there was an opportunity, a white space for that kind of a brand to exist. And right. And this um, was 2016, right? I mean, this was like... Yeah, 2015. 20, um, I mean, this was early. And I mean, now, yeah. you know, there's a lot of CBD out there, but I mean, five years ago, there wasn't. Yeah, or at least exactly. it wasn't, it wasn't mainstream and it wasn't branded and, and pretty. No, you know. like less than we estimated less than 2% of the American population had heard of CBD. At that wow. Point. Wow. Um, okay. And before we take our break, I just want to ask you, there were 30,000 steps in between the CBD honey <laughs> calling Kaylee and, you know, when you knew you had a business, but do you kind of remember a moment where you were like, oh, this is actually potentially going to work? Like this is going to work. Yeah. Yeah. We made a, a prototype of a, a cream with, um, I mean, it, it shared a lot in common with our current relief and recovery cream. Mm-hmm. Um, it had essential peppermint oil. It had a touch of menthol and it had CBD and it smelled great. And it absorbed well. And we took um, maybe 15, 20 bottles each home over Christmas just to see, are there people we can even give this away to? Right, right. <laughs> and and we wanted to know what questions people were asking, what were people's hesitancies, um, and you know, particularly the women in our mom's demographic, which um, my mom's a baby boomer, um, you know, those were the people that were the most interested in trying it. And when they tried it, we got really, really good feedback. Um, And and there didn't seem to be the same concern that was in our minds, the deal killer risk. Um, People were actually really excited about trying something that was new and still natural, but that, you know, we told them would hopefully work for them. And then when they said that it did work, it was um, the, the combination of knowing that the product itself was helping people along with um, the fact that our consumer insights work that we had done was proving itself to be true. Right. Uh, that was, that was the first indicator that like this could really work. Amazing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. I have so many questions. I'm so excited. <laughs> we'll be right back. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, To Know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To Know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Dino North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities, 
by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. I'm back with Kerrigan Behrens, a co-CEO and co-founder of Sagely Naturals. Okay, so I want to get back to the consumer insights because I, I feel like we talk about this a lot on this podcast. And, and just, you know, I think all of you guys know this, but I call this podcast when I'm telling guests um, who are coming on, I call it the like, how the hell am I going to build this podcast <laughs> as opposed to how I built this? Like, because I feel like there's a lot of sort of inspiration and aspiration out there, but really what we need as founders, I feel like is just practical, actionable sort of steps. So I'm going to hone in a little bit because I, what you said was really telling and it like, Finding out what the consumer needs is really hard because the consumer doesn't most of the time know what they need, or at least they they can't necessarily verbalize it. So even for us, like, you know, we will, you know, when we had the cooking school and the brick and mortar, we'd be like, what is it that you want to learn about cooking the most? And they could never answer that question. Mm. But what we got very good at doing was sort of teasing out when they said, I can't do this, or I don't ha- know how to do this, or fish scares me, or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, um, we got really good at kind of teasing out what they were telling us that they needed. And I think, you know, what what founders could really use help with, I think here is like, how do you even approach getting these consumer insights either before you have a product or, you know, in your case, like my guess is that there were some insights around curiosity around CBD, but they really didn't want to get high or, you know um, you know, I'm imagining that there were some themes that kind of kept coming up. And I guess how would you sort of recommend to founders to even know where to begin with what questions to ask. You know, we all have Instagram accounts. Like, should we be continually asking the people that follow us, like, a yeah. couple of questions? Like, what? how would you sort of say, advise people to approach that consumer insights part? Well, before you have the customer base, there are some amazing platforms that allow you to ask um, general population um, for for their insights. So um, now, you know, five years in, we use a combination of asking our current customers, we call them the Sagely Insiders, um, along with uh, Gen Pop data mm-hmm. um, to, to come to our conclusions. But at the beginning, we didn't have any customers and um what we were primarily trying to figure out was because no one had an attitude about 
CBD because no one had heard of it. So right. big, right. yeah, it's not like we could ask, like, would you try a CBD product? Right. <laughs> it was more trying to figure out, like, would someone consider using this kind of a product? And what would the barriers be? Because our, we would not have started this business had the insights told us that, you know, 80% of the population is not interested in using any cannabis products. Um, right. and, and it didn't matter you know, what, um, the particulars of the product were. And so we did find out that 80% of the people we surveyed were not interested in cannabis products that got them high. Mm -hmm. But the really important distinction was that, um, more than two thirds. So the, you know, vast majority of people said that they would be willing to try a cannabis product if it didn't get them high. And so that was what ultimately gave us the comfort to actually start the business in the first place, because we knew, like I said before, we knew that it worked um, or I did anyway, because I, it was working for me. Mm-hmm. And um, we knew that the, the market was open, um, that there weren't, you know, a ton of competitor brands at the time um, and that consumers were open to trying this kind of a product. And then, we used um, category data on top of that. So, um, you know, how many Americans use, for example, pain relief products? Um, What are the leading pain relief products and what do they sell? And so a combination of that along with the initial consumer insights, which was really just around um, willingness to try this kind of a product was how we got our start. But then we've used consumer insights all along the way for product development, right. um, you know, packaging decisions, um, marketing messaging. Um, yeah, pretty much every, you know, every decision we make somehow comes back to consumer insights. Which is, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of rudimentary, right? But sometimes we just get stuck in like, this is such a good product and the world needs this. And I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm just going to make it and keep talking about it the way I like to talk about it. I remember very early on, it really annoyed me when people would say like, I love your salad dressing. And I was like, it's not a salad dressing, it's a sauce. But you know what? Like, (laughs) ding dong, like if you want to use it as a salad dressing, that's amazing. Like, it turns out it's a great salad dressing, you know? And (laughs) I remember just having to kind of let go of my the way I saw the product and, and the, my vision kind of, and it kind of became more about the way that like our community saw it and used it all kind of holding on to like a, a main core a little bit, but definitely um, opening up to, to their insights. But, and I want to go back a little bit because was there, were you guys like, okay, CBD check. Now we have to figure out, is it a gummy? Is it a pill? Is it a cream? Or like, did you know from the get-go that you wanted it to be a cream? Yeah, that was more of a gut decision. It came from wanting the brand to be approachable. So Whenever I would think back to, you know, what's one adjective that I want this brand 
to convey and approachability was always that adjective. And so that really helped to inform um, the form factor decision mm-hmm. at the time, most of the products and actually even still the leading form of CBD sales in the country is a tincture, which mm-hmm. is one of those like under oil wrappers. Yeah, exactly. Right. Under the tongue. And even to this day, five years later, a lot of people still don't know what tinctures are. So we were proven wrong from a sales perspective, but from an <laughs> approachability perspective, we're still right is that that is not an approachable form factor. Um, and there was a lot that was wrong with that form factor in our minds. It didn't taste good. Yeah. I... And then we're also have, having to teach people on top of what is CBD, which is a huge endeavor. Um, right. If anyone can think back to the first time they learned about CBD, like, Hopefully you will remember how many questions you had or even still possibly have. Yep. Um, and, and then just thinking about, you know, what is this product for? And we were really um, zeroing in on the idea that we could help people with, um, with issues similar to mine. So right. a, a cream offers localized benefits, um, you know, and it's also just not as much of an ask to say, Hey, you are learning about CBD for the first time. I'm going to give you a lotion that you put on your skin. It's not something you have to swallow. Um, And therefore, you know, hopefully it's just a little more familiar. Um, And there's also an amazing experiential component to it. So when you put a cream on your skin, um, you know, it could either smell like weed or it could smell like really light essential peppermint oil. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it could be a greasy salve or it could be a lightweight, fast absorbing cream. And, and so we knew at the time, the only topical solutions were these greasy, you know, pot smelling, mm-hmm. um, green salves, um, that just would like sit on your skin for, for hours and, um, stick to your clothes. And yeah. so there were a lot of ways to actually improve the form factor and, um, and then the consumer insights were sort of done on top of that. Um, but that one was more of just a, we really think that cream is the best form to start with. And um, that was a, maybe a lucky hunch because um, that allowed us to really uh, dominate that type of product within the category. Right. And I would think that it would allow you to dominate a couple of other things too. So like I'm thinking about, you know, it's, it's definitely a more sensory experience. You, I mean, a tincture, the only tinctures I've seen are like these little tiny bottles, you know, you can have, when you have a cream on the shelf, right. It's a bigger box and you can mm-hmm. tell more of the story and you can, you, it, I think like, I can't think of very many brands that have built themselves on the, like that small, tiny little bottle. It's just too mm-hmm. hard to tell the brand story, right? I mean, I think what feels like was so smart on top of the fact that you were very early in a, in a market um, was that you weren't, I don't know, was that you were trying to mainstream something and you were very clear about that. And so the decisions that you made, and this is just you know my sort of external sort of you know understanding of it, you know, if you want to be in Walgreens, you need a certain type of packaging 
that works in Walgreens. And mm -hmm. it feels like you just, you nailed that, you know? I mean, you guys are, I, and, and this is something I want to go to, because I don't think I've had a guest on that's in drug, grocery, <laughs> and beauty. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you're in a lot of um, different channels and that's very unusual. I, don't, I can't think of anyone else that I've had on. So I'm curious about, you know, once you guys figured out, you figured out a nice smooth cream that smells good. You figured out cream, you figured out, you know, how to sort of create an approachable brand. And it's funny because I was listening also just talking, you know, where Sagely came from and we'll get to Jungian archetypes in a minute, but, um, you know, did you have at that point, like a plan, okay, we're going to start in, I mean, 2015, like we're going to start here, then we're going to tell that story, then we're going to move there. And I mean, what, what was the sort of go-to-market plan, I guess? We wanted to be the first CBD brand sold in mainstream stores. So, yeah. you know, at the time it was um, Whole Foods and Target just because um, we both shopped at both stores. And so to us, that felt like the pinnacle of success. Um, right. Funny enough, we are not carried yet <laughs> in either of those stores. Right. Um, <laughs> they're barely carrying the targets, not carrying CBD yet. Um, and whole foods is carrying it in a very, very limited capacity, but yeah, the, the goal was, um, accessibility, approachability. So we want to be available in the types of retailers where people shop. Um, Did and you have a direct, um, I mean, I'm trying to even think back to 2015 or 2016, like, did you sell direct to consumer at that point? Were you yeah, allowed actually, to? What? is mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> allowed to yes <laughs> but advertising has always been a challenge online and um yeah d2c has always been a really important part of our distribution strategy our our first sales really came from our website um and then also um funny enough from from dispensaries as well as local natural food stores um, here in, in the LA area, which is right. where we're based. But yeah, the goal was always to be in mainstream retailers. And we... And how'd you get there? I mean, going from a dispensary to CVS seems like an unlikely path. Mm -hmm. um, and what, you know, I'm sure there were some decisions along the way that you had to make and you know, my guess is, were you guys going like door to door to dispensary and basically? Like, oh, yeah. 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 I We were the traveling salespeople. Um, I had product in my trunk. Kaylee um, actually didn't even own a car when we started the business. Right. She would just like ride her bike around Santa Monica um, <laughs> until I finally sat her down and was like, I'm kind of covering a lot more territory than you are. I need to buy a car. <laughs> Um, That's funny. But yeah, we were just trying to sell to um, anyone that was, you know, open. Because um, at the time, it wasn't being sold in mainstream retailers. And right. we knew that dispensaries were not a part of our long-term strategy because we never intended um, and still do not intend to ever launch products with 
um, THC in them or products right. that are from marijuana. Um, we are we are very happy with the hemp plant. Um, there are a lot of cannabinoids that are not psychoactive. Um, so you will see products from us in the future with minor cannabinoids other than CBD, but not mm -hmm. THC. Got it. So dispensaries were kind of um, a just necessary. I hate to say necessary evil. That's a horrible way to say it. Um, but it was but, the only way to get the product out there to people who were willing to try it. Yeah. And not just right. that, but they also paid in cash. And so, uh, you know, the first right. hundred natural food stores that we sold to, they're all asking us for like 90 day six terms months of credit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ridiculous. They yeah. totally know that they can take advantage of us because we're, you know, it's never a good sign when you're like, I'm the founder or selling uh -huh. you the product, but um, yeah. we should have just said, hi, I'm a local sales rep. Um, right. But yeah, the dispensaries paid in cash on delivery and um, our online sales helped to to bring cash in the door. And um, so that's how we really, we were able to actually gain profitability within the first six months of the business because we were getting cash in the door. Right. Um, that's awesome. And then the eye was always on the the larger retailers and we, there was of course an element of being in the right place at the right time. But um, we learned about this conference that's called ECRM mm -hmm. and it's really like the, the most important um, big chain retailer conference of the year. It's um, like, you know, Expo West is sort of that for natural food stores and then right. ECRM is that for the, the mass retailers. And yeah, um, we made a really big gamble, which is that we knew mass retailers weren't yet carrying CBD. The conference was incredibly expensive. Um, but we just decided like, well, we want to be able to pitch and tell our story. And then when regulation moves in our favor, hopefully they'll just have us in mind. And that timing was really lucky because, um, ECRM was in 2018, mid 2018. And then the, the piece of regulation that sort of finally took away like the gray area of legality for hemp and its derivatives was passed in late 2018. So um, all of our, you know, purchase orders from our main retailers like CVS um, came in in January, 2019. Amazing. That's, I mean, that's, that's just like a year and a half ago. It's kind of <laughs> yeah. amazing, right? I mean, time goes so weird in these things. So, um, so that farm bill that at, you know, that 2018 sort of farm bill, what did, what did it change? It just meant that you were allowed to distribute in national retailers. Like that was, that was it. Or no, you know. it didn't actually say anything about where the products could be sold. It more, um, it took the DEA out of the equation. So um, right. before the farm bill was passed, the DEA had jurisdiction over the cannabis plant. And um, I'll just take two quick seconds to explain because people often don't understand right. like what is cannabis, what is marijuana, what is hemp. And the, the truth is they're all the same thing. Um, right. <laughs> cannabis sativa is the name of the plant species and people who are in um, marijuana would actually like yell at me to be calling it marijuana. They have, tried to co-opt the name cannabis to mean marijuana, but mm. it ends up making the whole thing a lot more confusing because technically hemp is cannabis. Um, and so I have yet to come up with my own term for marijuana right. that's not going to piss off people that sell right. marijuana products. 
But um, hemp is legally a cannabis plant that contains less than 0.3% of THC. So it's essentially a cannabis plant that can't get you high. And before the farm bill was passed, the DEA still had jurisdiction of the hemp plant. After the farm bill was passed, it was just the Department of Agriculture. So the same jurisdiction as, you know, wheat or corn or soy. Um, and, And then it just gave retailers the comfort because it this bill basically said hemp and its derivatives are illegal full stop um right and so retailers who before had you know concerns around the way that this bill had been worded previously said okay that's that's a lot more clear now and that was when cvs came in and like uh, the grocery stores like the sprouts and the fresh times and the wegmans of the world or were they earlier. Yeah. Um, actually the, the fresh times of the world were before, um, and that was sort of a saving grace was that the more independently owned natural retailers were just more comfortable with the risk. Um, they, you know, have less visibility than a retailer, like a a CVS and, um, and they also saw like that sales were booming, um, right. which then of course the larger retailers took notice of as well. And that's why the buyers were, were really excited when their legal departments finally signed off on it. But yeah, it started with the natural retailers um, and then it was drug. Um, and then funny enough, grocery kind of followed drug. Right. So here's a question about that time, right? Because you basically went from being you know, the, a little bit in a category by yourself and trying to sort of lead the charge on education. And then almost like overnight, there was just like a gold rush into the Mm -hmm. category. How did you adjust to that shift? I mean, obviously you're, you know, the core of who you are hasn't changed. And I think there's something in that you you don't seem to be, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but you don't seem to be like super millennial focused. You do seem <laughs> to be a little bit more mature focused, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, Thanks although, for noticing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad I got that right. If you were like, no, actually, I'd be like, oh, shoot. Um, but you know, it's like, there's something a little bit more, um, grown up, I guess, or, and, and that seems to have changed, you know, or stayed the same, I guess. But how did you adjust? I mean, were you guys like, oh shoot, now there are all these brands coming and flooding in and there's all this crap out there that isn't real. And now all of a sudden everyone's selling everything on Instagram, you know, a lot changed between 2015 and 2019, how did you kind of hold on to who you guys were and what you guys were doing and, and, you know, what your plan was? Well, thank you for noticing that. It makes me really happy that that is, um, that that's obvious about the brand because it's, yeah. it's, it was never, um, we never intended to be a millennial brand, even though my co-founder and I are both millennials, um, we we realized pretty early on that many people could benefit from CBD and um and and in particular you know that my mom was um 
and her friends were, were finding a lot of benefit from the products. And so we actually started with the baby boomer woman in mind as our, our target consumer. And, um, we only really started introducing products that were for women of other ages as we saw traffic coming to the site mm-hmm. um, and, you know, followers to our different social channels leading us to to realize that we had um, a lot of interested potential consumers that weren't having their needs being met. So, And I do, sorry um, to interrupt you, I really do like this. And I think this is important for founders to hear because everyone is kind of going after the same five people, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there are millions of them, but it's like when I hear about businesses that are going for a very different demographic or choosing, you know, choosing something that that isn't kind of flooded with competition, but trying to do it in a way that, you know, speaks to maybe a different audience. I think that that's so smart, you know? I mean, it, and it probably gave you a really good leg up when the competition got fierce because everyone was going for those, that particular demographic is, is my guess. Yeah, well, thank you. I think that that is always what we've tried to do. We've always tried to be really intentional about our consumer and how we are reaching them. And it's harder when you don't have a lot of budget um, because, you know, going after a consumer without a budget, I mean, it doesn't matter who you're going after, but (laughs) it's hard. Um, But yeah, that's exactly how I was going to answer your question before. I think, (laughs) yeah, we, we, we always knew who our consumer was and the brands that we were competing with from day one um, never took a stand and they were trying to be all things to all people. And we've seen their market share erode and we've seen our market share grow. And, and I think buyers of our retailers like that we know who our consumer is because we're able to better meet their needs. And so, um, of course that all this competition has affected us and it has made us rethink a lot of things from, you know, pricing and potency. And um, it's not like we have remained unchanged since day one, but our brand positioning has actually, we, we sort of, because of that consumer insights, we haven't really had to change our positioning that much. And, um, and our consumer has grown, um, in terms of, you know, age range, but the need states are the same. Um, and generally who we're, who we're targeting has stayed the same. So going back a little bit to sort of the D to C element. So you, I think you said, are you allowed to do like Facebook and Instagram ads directing people to your website? Okay. So you're, so you're basically doing a D to C channel without any ads. That's yeah. That, yeah. So, th- so that's very hard. Like, and, yeah. and one of the things that I think is really interesting about your strategy is that by making it more approachable to a more mainstream and a, and an older consumer, you're basically getting them to stores, which are essentially acting as billboards. Like, for the product and then they can go buy it online. Like in a way, I, and it's funny cause I've just been thinking about this a lot lately cause we're launching 
our direct-to-consumer channel, and we've never really invested anything in it. But I've always thought of like having the website and being able to buy online as a way to support the store growth. But now I'm also starting to think of the stores as billboards for mm-hmm. the product, sending people back to get their, you know, get their subscriptions for sauce or buy their cases of sauce online and how totally kind of synergistically the digital and the analog kind of work together. And my guess is, is that yeah, it's unusual for CBD, I would think, because I don't, I mean, are there any other brands that have Ulta and CVS and Walgreens and Wegmans? Like it's, I, I, I mean, no. yeah. So it's kind of amazing that you have as strong of a direct business as you do without any, you know, you're not, you're not driving people there other than basically through the product and then wanting to rebuy the product unless there's something I'm missing. Is there, is there more? No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you might be giving us more credit for our, our D to C channel. Um, than we deserve. But I do think that what you said about having billboards in these stores is so true. And Mm -hmm. that's why it was so important to us to choose um, the right retail partners, because we felt like it was a a signal to potential customers of our quality. And actually, most CBD sales are done online. Um, Right. But for us, it was important to go the the retail channel because there are so many brands um, online, and and how do you tell the quality apart if they're if you don't have that external validation? Like we do so much testing on our products, um, and we talk about it on our website. But you, there is an element of of trust, um, mm-hmm. you know that that we are doing what we we say we're doing, um, and when you see a product in a store like a CVS, you right. know that it's they are, yeah. yeah, that they're doing the testing. Yeah. You don't have to take our word for it. I think that's so interesting. I was listening back to like, I think the second episode of this podcast, and this is like, I think episode 96 or something. So it was a long time wow, ago. Congrats. Thank you. But I was interviewing this woman named um, Taryn, who's a press relations person. And we were talking about kind of the role of media. Um, now that everyone's talking directly to consumers. And she said, I actually think the role of media is more important than ever because it gives a little bit of legitimacy and a little bit of validation, maybe not a hundred percent. We all know that, you know, yeah, marketing comes in all sorts of media, right? (laughs) Um, But she said like, it, it kind of helped. There's so much out there that it helps provide a little bit of legitimacy and it helps kind of like narrow the field a little bit. And someone outside of the brand is saying, this is good and we like it and you should try it. Mm -hmm. And how much more so with retailers, like CBS is not putting anything on their shelves. That's just cool. You know, I mean, they want it to be effective and they want it to, they want it to be, you know, vetted in all sorts of ways. So I think it's really, it's very cool. So I don't know if you meant to or not, but I think, and I think for other founders thinking about, you know, I, I've said this so many times over the last couple of months, but 
you, I just don't think you can be only digital or only, you know, wholesale. I think at this point you have to be both. And for us, like in refrigerated, you have to figure out how to make that work. It's obviously easier if you're shelf stable, mm-hmm. but there's just, you can't just be one channel anymore. And I think this is a good example of how they can really work together. Okay. For the last couple of questions, I want to get back to Sagely um, and the brand identity. And I have like my team and I read this book called Brand Thinking by Debbie Millman a few years ago. And we learned all about Jungian archetypes. (laughs) And um, we talk about it a lot as like our identity as a brand. But tell me where the name Sagely came from um, and kind of what what you were going for when you named the company. Yeah. So I am not familiar with that book, but actually the idea for this came out also out of a book about archetypes. Um, the, this one was called the hero and the outlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and it distills down all brands that you would be very familiar with into different archetypes. And, and so I actually read the book um, thinking that I wanted to just choose an archetype um, and, and allow that to be the framework through which I thought about um, the brand and then the name. And then funny enough, one of the archetypes was the sage. And mm-hmm. as I was reading it, it just um, resonated. And it the sage is this idea of, healing and wisdom and truth and discovery and these concepts stood so starkly against um the players that were in the category already that in my mind felt more like a um, (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly yeah the Cheech and Chong and um the Dr. Dre and yeah the just yeah the the stoner stereotype like how do you make cannabis feel um medicinal again and the truth is actually most people think that cannabis is medicinal and mm-hmm. that that's back to my initial consumer insights work people already believe that medi- that cannabis is medicinal um so that was something we we knew we weren't going to have to actually teach people or influence people about but right. but there wasn't a brand someone... that, that that held that yeah state. yeah Exactly. And, um, and then, and then this image of, you know, an old man with a white beard and robes kind of came to mind. And how do we feminize that? Mm -hmm. Um, And so this, the name sagely um, quickly became a favorite that we were choosing between and um, and, and really just wanting to dive deep into this idea of what does a female sage look like? And, right. and so everything from, you know, how do we talk to our consumers? Um, like we want to allow them to discover and allow them to find truth. And so we're never going to tell people um, in a hit you over the head way what our products do for you. We're going to give you the information to come to your own conclusions um, we're going to educate uh, more than sell. Um, you know, that kind of a decision came from this archetype of idea of the female sage. Right. Um, and, and yeah, so Sage Lee sounded like a more feminine version of sage. Um, 
and and yeah, that's how how it all got started. And it's cool because it just you know I think it's it's if you haven't out there like if you haven't kind of done this little archetype thing for your brand, you don't need an agency to help you through it. You just need to Google Jungian archetype brand, and <laughs> you'll basically get to somewhere between twelve and twenty, depending on who's writing about them. Um, but it's very interesting to think about how everything kind of ladders up to that, right? So like you could be a CBD brand that's got the sage archetype, or you could be, you know, the CBD brand that has like the journeyman archetype or whatever it is. And those are going to look very different. The fonts are going to be different. The colors are going to be different. The language is going to be different. And the products are probably going to be different, you know, and all of that communication is going to end up you know, knowing that I feel like is a big, you've never had to change because you always knew who you were, um, you know, from the get-go and you've been kind of, you know, swarmed by all this information and noise and legislation and new channels and all this stuff, but you've remained so true to that. Um, and I really think that that's the key success. It's um, so funny that you mentioned the branding agency um, because we actually were going to hire one. And the first um, thing that they sent us was this mood board and it just really didn't speak to me. Um, It it didn't, it didn't go far enough, like by half Um, because seeing, you know, a picture of a beautiful wave, like I'm not, I am a creative person, but I'm not right. a creative. And so, right. um, so actually we ended up not using the agency at all um, and did a very DIY approach. But to your point, like starting with that idea of the archetype gave us so much more information than, um, than we would have gotten out of just having, you know, our, our fonts and colors. I mean, you need all of that, of course, right. but it's much better to start with the the start with an idea who you are and even like I think it was last week um Sandro was my guest from Sanzo and he said you know even when you do use an agency having all of this stuff knowing your Jungian archetype knowing all of that sort of like core who are we and and who are we speaking to stuff figured out will save you a lot of time and money, even if you do go to an agency for help with the visuals, yeah. because th- so much of what they're trying to get to is like, you know, no one should ever just come up with a brand, right. That doesn't ladder up to something much deeper, right. If someone ever yeah, just exactly. gives you like a design for a logo, but hasn't spent time really understanding who you are and what you're trying to do, that's a big red flag. Um, all right. I'm going to finish it up. Kerrigan, if you were speaking to a founder or you were speaking to yourself, you've had this question before, I'm sure tons of times, but what would be sort of the thing you wish you would have known, the thing you wish people would keep in mind or something, um, you know, your just sort of best advice? Yeah, well, I do have to remind myself this all the time. So I'm glad you said it wasn't just advice for other entrepreneurs, because okay. this is a great, a great time to remind <laughs> myself um, of this idea of progress over perfection. And that 
I, on a daily basis, you know, want to do one more round of edits to that email or another round of tweaks um, to pretty much everything involved in the business, Um, investor decks, um, you know, everything. And the fact is, other than for your product, um, which needs to be perfect, (laughs) nothing else needs to be perfect. Um, And it's, there's, just a constant iteration of everything. And if you wait for things to be perfect, then you're, you're stopping your own progress. So yeah, yeah I amazing. am very guilty of that, but need good reminder. <laughs> yeah. Keep, you know, write that on, I have sticky notes on my laptop. One of them says I would prefer not to, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it just is a reminder that I'm allowed to say that. Um, but also I feel like one of them should actually now say progress over perfection. I'm going to make a little sticky. Um, I'd love to know your other sticky. I have a few, I have a few, I'll tell you offline. Um, (laughs) remember to call and then my therapist's name is one of them. Cause sometimes when I'm upset, I forget that I actually have someone I can call. So it's, that's the big one. Yeah. Anywho. Um, just a little more personal information than anyone needed to know, but there it is. Amanda, thank you for, um, engineering us this week and, um, Kerrigan, thank you so much for coming on. You, um, you're awesome and I'm excited for you guys. And I love, um, I love my cream. So I got some a couple weeks ago. Oh, good. Like try before I interviewed you. So it, it definitely, um, I think it works and it feels good and it has all of that stuff. And now I'm picturing this little sage administering it to me. So it makes me happy. Um, and I'll be back next it's been week. such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce.